Welcome again to all those of you who are joining us online. This is our last Sunday before Christmas, so I guess that kind of makes this our Christmas service. On my drive in to church this morning, I was listening to one of those radio stations that have programmed Christmas music all day, every day, day after day after day, until Christmas Day finally comes and you just can't take it anymore. But one of the songs playing on the way in this morning is actually kind of a seasonal favorite. It's an old Walter Kent tune, and it's called, and you'll recognize it, I'll Be Home for Christmas. Recorded, I think, first by Bing Crosby during the the, uh, the waning years of World War II. Uh, like everyone else, uh, he recorded it, and anybody of any substance who's ever released a Christmas album has recorded it as well. I'll be home for Christmas. And when those words first ascended the charts, that was good news. So many people were scattered abroad because of the Second World War, and that was their, that was their longing, that was their dream, to be home and together again for Christmas. But I wager that most of you, as you're gathering together on a sofa this year for Christmas from the confines of your own home, having been stuck there, many of you, for quite some time, that you're thinking something very different when you speak or sing those words, I'll be home for Christmas. It doesn't feel as much like good news this year as it does other years. Like most of you, our family spends many of the days leading up to or the days following Christmas uh, visiting and traveling and being together with various members of our friends and our extended family. You know, one of the fun things about being married is you get to see your own family through the eyes of another. And through the eyes of my wife, I get to see a lot of things about my family that I kind of take for granted, things that are really wonderful about them, uh, things that are kind of unique, some things that are just a little bit quirky. One of our family traditions is how we do gifts. Honestly, there's quite a lot of them. (laughs) Meticulously and carefully wrapped, arranged just so all around the edges of the family room where we gather. It's enough when you see it to unleash that inner child that's dormant inside all of us. But one of the things that has become a feature of our family gathering is the envelope given at the end of the morning. The envelope that contains a carefully sorted collection of receipts. One for each family. You know what I'm talking about? Gift receipts. The way of saying, hey, if you're disappointed with your gift, just suck it up and smile because you can take it back tomorrow and exchange it for what you really wanted. Every time you open a present in our, ha- in our household, you're as likely as not to hear somebody say, hey, you know what, if you don't like it, you can exchange it for something you really want. Maybe at some point, I don't know, we'll stop exchanging gifts altogether and we'll just give each other little receipts. In fact, we actually do that, don't we? We we just call them gift cards, which is our way of saying, hey, you know what? I don't actually have to do the shopping at all. You do it. You pick what you want. You'll love it. And if you don't like it, hey, it's your fault this year. (laughs) I have found myself running back into a store to ask for a gift receipt when I've forgotten, or more likely running into the store to buy multiple versions of the same gift. Am I the only one who does this? 
to have two or three different sizes or different colors or different models so at the end of the morning people can shop in their own little store and pick out what they really wanted, what fits them just right, what just strikes their fancy. So much work. All to avoid that little moment of disappointment. So much work to avoid that, gosh, I'm not really sure that that's what they really wanted feeling. Christmas is such an interesting time because it tends to draw out all of our expectations and all of the pressures and all of the emotions. Somebody once called this the intensifying dynamic of Christmas, the intensifying dynamic of Christmas. And what they meant was that Christmas is a time where our highs tend to feel higher, but our lows also tend to feel lower. Some of you are going to be on a Christmas high this week. Maybe you're celebrating your first Christmas together as a couple. Congratulations. Maybe your first Christmas together in Canada. Welcome. Maybe your first Christmas together with a newborn child or your first in a new home. Some of you started a new new job. Some of you feel like you're in a better circumstance this year than you were this time last year. And it feels like just the right time to celebrate that high that you're on, the goodness of life. But I have a feeling that 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 probably won't be the case for many of you. Maybe this year you lost your job. You're not quite sure what the future holds. Maybe this year you experienced the end of a relationship or the loss of a loved one. Maybe this year your own health has taken a hit. Or in the past 12 months, your circumstances have changed for the poor. More than likely, almost all of us will be separated from the people who are dear to us as we spend this year confined to our own homes by a virus that has just kind of ruled our life for the past nine months. Christmas has that power to make our lows feel even lower doesn't it? I mean, it it takes what's broken or or what's missing or what feels wrong, and it just brings it to the surface. We all face situations in our lives that we don't anticipate. And unfortunately, there's no envelope that's given when they come. There's no gift receipt. There's no ability to give them back. The Christmas story actually is one of those unwanted gift stories. When we peel back all the layers, you could call them layers of romanticism, the Christmas story is kind of like a chronicle of unwanted gifts. There's Mary's. Mary, who holds the burden of being the mother of Jesus. Young Mary, teenage Mary. You're about to give birth to the Messiah. No pressure, though. There's Joseph at her side as her fiancé. We're going to dig into Joseph's story a bit today. Joseph's story often gets overlooked in the Christmas narrative. We don't think too much about his role in it. In fact, Joseph is kind of a quiet figure, not a man of many words. In fact, in the entire New Testament, there's not a single recorded word attributed to Joseph. But what I hope you will see as we unpack the story this morning is that in this account of the many unwanted gifts of Christmas, 
Joseph was anything but passive. It was much more than just a bystander. That he faced actually one of the most unwanted, unwelcome of all possible gifts. But his response to it changed not only his life, changed the trajectory of the Christmas story, changed the trajectory of history and has the power to change yours as well. So we're going to read through that story. I'm going to invite you, if you if you have a device or have the Bible with you, to open with me to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1. We're going to read that story starting in verse 18. And this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, he was a righteous man. We're going to come back to that expression. But because he was a righteous man, he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. And so he had this plan in mind that he would divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And the angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home to be his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and they gave him the name Jesus. Many of you have heard the story before. You've probably seen it dramatized in one way or another. Kids filling the stage. Laughter and hilarity ensues when you see their costumes and watch them bump into each other, and we love it. But in a sense, it prevents us from seeing the controversy of what's really going on here. The absolute explosiveness of Matthew's language. Matthew begins with this statement in chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah, he says. This is how the birth of the anointed one, the expected one, the person Israel has been awaiting so long. This is how the birth came about. His, Mary, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, it says. Now, pledged to be married is quite a different thing than being married. In fact, it's quite a different thing than engagements in our day. Uh, the, the language associated with it in some of your translations is betrothal. They were betrothed, which again is very different from modern engagements. Today, engagements are they, they're pretty much about starry-eyed couples who are planning an event that's probably going to bankrupt them and their parents. But it's not the same for Mary and Joseph. They didn't meet on Match.com. They didn't become friends and then more than friends and then kissing friends who refused to admit that they were in fact dating. They didn't, they didn't go that story. 
Instead, they were pledged to each other by their families. They were just teenagers. I mean, if they were following everything that we know about the betrothal traditions of the ancient Near East, Joseph was probably around the age of 18, Mary probably around the age of 13. And they likely didn't know each other very well yet. But the pledge to be married, and this is the important thing, the pledge to be married had the same legal weight as actually being married. In fact, they were referred to as husband and wife. You see that in the story. They were called husband and wife, even though they were just in the betrothal period. They could be separated, but only by a certificate of divorce. Now that period, the the betrothal period, would last for a year or more. They didn't live together. They hadn't consummated their marriage, which means the one thing that absolutely was not supposed to happen in the betrothal period was for Mary to get pregnant. Mary's pregnancy presents a serious dilemma for Joseph. And I just, we can't underestimate how serious a dilemma this really is. Matthew notes, and we emphasized it when we read, that Joseph was a good man. And we read that and we we think, okay, he's a good guy. He's a go-to-the-church kind of guy. He's polite to his neighbors. He's a nice guy. But really, when it says that Joseph was a righteous man, what's being used there is a very specific, very technical term. It was attached to somebody's reputation. That phrase, a righteous man, is what they would call in Hebrew a sadiq. A sadiq was known for how devoted and faithful they were to the law, to every detail of the Torah. They wouldn't eat unclean foods. They wouldn't hang out with disreputable people. They wouldn't violate Sabbath laws. They wouldn't ignore the holy days of Israel. And certainly a sadiq, a righteous man, would not enter into marriage with a woman who was already pregnant. And the rumors were now circulating about Mary, about where this child could come from. Well, Joseph, a righteous man, a sadiq, the highest honor you could hold as a simple carpenter in Nazareth, the highest, the loftiest goal for his life. Remember, the currency in the ancient world is not so much money and property as it is honor. This was his honor. This was his dream. He was known for his reputation in righteousness. And imagine for a second the vision he had for his own future. The vision for a good marriage. The vision for a family who would likewise be known for their righteousness and their faithfulness and their fidelity. And then imagine what he experiences when he first hears the news. He doesn't hear it from Mary. It says Mary was found out to be pregnant. He heard it through the rumor mill, that destructive gossip mill that is part of every small town culture. Imagine the conversation, though. Imagine him finally confronting Mary and Mary trying to explain what happened. Joseph, I'm pregnant, but but don't worry. I I haven't been with another man. It, It was the Holy Spirit. Really, Joseph, it's a miracle, the miracle of miracles. You've heard of Ave Maria? That's about me. It's going to be a timeless classic. Joseph, aren't you excited about this? Clearly, he wasn't. Everything in his future changed 
in a moment. A baby conceived by the Holy Spirit. I mean, even if that was true, who would believe it? The only explanation that people were going to believe is that Mary had either been with another man or had been with Joseph improperly during their betrothal period. And in that day, the storyline had clear consequences and they were severe. In Deuteronomy, in chapter 22, it describes the punishment of a woman caught in adultery. 22 verse 21 says, She shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town will stone her to death. Listen, to the best of our knowledge, at least in Jesus' day, the punishment was not often practiced. But the public exposure, the shame, the disgrace, all of that would be. A woman caught in or believed to have committed adultery would be brought to a public place, would be stripped of her clothes and mocked and abused. And those of you who know the stories of Jesus know that he intervened on behalf of a woman who was in exactly that situation. So we know this is real. By the way, have you ever wondered, as part of the Christmas story, why it is that Joseph, when the census was taken would travel with his nine-month pregnant wife all the way from Nazareth to faraway Bethlehem. There's no legal requirement that we know of to do that. Why do it? Could it be that he feared for her safety? That the rumors were spreading like wildfire? That the zealous members of the town would take her into the public square and strip her and abuse her and mock her and maybe stone her? The law was painfully clear. And for a righteous man, for a Sadiq, for Joseph, what the law says, you do. You do it. So what does Joseph do? It's actually an act of incredible, unexpected grace and compassion. He decides to spare Mary, to spare all of that public disgrace, to divorce her quietly. I mean, he could have subjected Mary to public disgrace and exonerated himself, protected his own reputation, but he chooses to do something that is much more gracious. But make no mistake, even in his compassion, he's frustrated. I mean, he just wants this situation to be over. He wants a gift receipt, a give back. A quiet divorce is still a divorce, right? In fact, when Matthew says that Joseph considered this, verse 4, that word considered can be translated as he got frustrated, he was fuming, he was angry. In fact, the word The word only appears one other time that we know of in the New Testament. Sorry, this is the verse 4. In Matthew 9, verse 4. When Jesus is describing the religious leaders in his day, he says, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? What is it that you're considering? Why are you frustrated? Joseph, why does your mind swirl with all of these thoughts about Mary? I'll tell you why. Because it's his life. It's his future. And all his hopes for his life had come crashing down before his eyes. 
We think it's just a neat little part of the nativity set that we set on the mantle, right? This is real. He's frustrated and he's hurt and his mind is swirling with frustration over where things are headed, over the turn that his life has suddenly taken. So let me pause there and just ask you, have you ever been in that situation? Been in a place like that when the news suddenly came? The moment when the circumstances changed for the worst and it hurt you the most? You found out that you'd lost your job? When that person said, I don't love you anymore? When you watched a child or a friend or a loved one face a situation that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. It's in seasons like those when it's so easy to fall into bitterness and cynicism and discouragement. When we hear all the words about Christmas, all the songs about being merry and having joy and peace, And all those things just kind of lose their meaning. Which is why if we're going to get back to the joy to the world, authenticity of Christmas, you have to hear the real story of Christmas first. The first unwanted gift story of Christmas. You need to hear what really happened because we're not going to make sense of what's happening in our own lives if we don't see it through the lens of what actually happened at Christmas. So what happens to Joseph? In the middle of his moment of disappointment, in the midst of all that discouragement and frustration, when his mind is racing, it's in that moment that Joseph hears from God. I mean, notice that. When he least expects it, that's when God shows up. Isn't that often the case? Not when life is tidy and all put together. It doesn't happen when Joseph is cool and calm and collected. It doesn't happen while he's worshiping at church and when things are good and when all is calm and all is bright. No, it's when he's closest to disappointment. I mean, here's what we need to see in this. It is often when we are closest to disappointment that God is actually closest To us. And I can't stress this for you enough about Christmas. As the Christmas story moves forward, it moves forward only because Joseph hears from God, is ready at last and willing to listen. It's only when we are closest to disappointment that God is closest to us. It's why for over 2,000 years, the church has set aside an extended time of, re- of reflection and, and a chance to contemplate what it is that's happening in your life. It's the Advent season, the life of the church. It's not just a passive season of waiting. It's an active season of making space for God, especially if you're stressed and if you're struggling, to hear from God. To block off time. To set aside time from work and activity. Lock yourself into the bathroom if you have to. But but make time and listen for what God is trying to say to you. When you're closest to disappointment, 
God is drawing closest to you. I wonder what he'll say. I wonder what word he has for you. He had a particular word for Joseph. What is it that God says to Joseph through his messenger? Three things. Don't be afraid. Take Mary as your wife and name Jesus as your son. Don't be afraid. Why don't be afraid? Because the next two decisions that Joseph is being asked to make will be among the costliest of his life. They would be among the most difficult choices that he ever has to make. For Joseph to take Mary as his wife and Jesus as his son is going to mean he binding himself to a woman thought to be an adulteress and a child thought to be illegitimate. And the cost of that in terms of his reputation, his life, his future, is hard to underestimate. And just consider a few things. It means that none of his friends... Probably not many of his, his family would attend a wedding because it was such a disgrace. It means his family would be required to shun him, even disown him. It means that Joseph, the boy had been known as such a good kid, faithful and devout, would never again be thought of as a righteous man, a Sadiq. And here's the thing, maybe you don't believe this, but we see it playing out in the rest of the New Testament. In Jesus' ministry, when he comes back to Nazareth, when he's preaching in his hometown, the place where Joseph was from, we find people saying things like this, hey, isn't that the carpenter? Isn't that Mary's son? Where's Joseph? And that's not at all common to identify a person's lineage through their mother. When the messenger appeared to Joseph, he said, Joseph, son of David. That's how you designated a person's patrimony. Joseph gets pushed to the edges. His reputation in tatters. That's Mary's son. They don't even name him anymore. He used to be one of the good guys. Now he's disgraced. His name, his reputation, the things that he valued most, he would never get them back. You see what it cost him? And it's interesting that after the Christmas story, we really don't hear much from Joseph. He's rarely mentioned. He just fades into the background. He's still there today, just there in the background. Quarterback throws that last-minute pass. We don't call it a Hail Joseph. It's a Hail Mary, right? But I'll tell you this, there is one person who never forgot what Joseph did that day. It's the child that he took in. The little boy that he called his son. The boy who never forgot what he saw in his father. The son who saw his father's true inner goodness, his righteousness, and saw all the ways that it surpassed those of the so-called holy ones of Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes. The son who watched his father come to the defense of a woman who supposedly committed adultery, but was the innocent vessel through which God was bringing a miracle to life. The son who watched his father take on shame and disgrace and scandal so that they could live. Does it sound familiar to anyone else? It, it brings new meaning to the words of Jesus when he says, and this is in John 5, verse 19, Very truly I tell you, 
The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Of course, that refers to his heavenly father, but is it so hard to imagine that he saw glimpses of goodness in Joseph as well? Maybe it means a little bit more than we see at first. Maybe Joseph wasn't quite so silent after all. His decision, his faith in the moment, don't be afraid, take Mary as your wife, name Jesus as your son. I wonder where that leaves you and me. This year has brought some pretty unwelcome gifts into our lives, hasn't it? I wonder if those angel instructions aren't just a little bit relevant this year. Maybe the wording is different, but maybe they're just as important as they were to Joseph. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. No matter how hard it gets, no matter the situation you face, no matter how costly it looks, no matter how much it feels like the future is in doubt, don't be afraid. It is so easy to fall victim to fear, to think that the worst is still to come, that God has turned his back on us, but the Christmas story, the Christmas story, released of all of its veneer and trappings, It changes all of that because at the heart of it is simply this boy given the name Jesus but bearing the title Emmanuel, God with us, the with us God. God who is not far away. God who is not disinterested. God who is close to you right now even if you can't see it or feel it. And if there's anything in the Christmas story that resonates this year more than most, It's that it doesn't say that those unwelcome gifts won't come into our lives. That unwelcome circumstances won't be part of the rhythm and structure of our days. But it promises that God will be with us. So don't be afraid. No matter what you're facing today, don't be afraid. But here's the second thing. Take a risk. I mean, isn't that what what the messenger is saying to Joseph? Take Mary as your wife. Take a risk. This is going to be risky. You can't do this halfway, Joseph. You have to risk that God is going to do something good with this, that God can redeem this. You have to risk that there's going to be hope, even though it feels like there's none. Take a risk. What's the risk that you need to take this Christmas? Maybe it's simply not to give up praying, even though it feels like God is taking forever to answer some of the things that you're asking for, and he's not listening. Maybe the risk is not following into bitterness and cynicism, even when it feels like, my goodness, this situation is never going to change. Maybe the risk is loving the person is so hard to love, and you're just tired of it. It feels like you don't have what it takes anymore. Or maybe the risk for you is reaching out to somebody or serving or doing something to give even though you're running on empty. Take a risk. Take a risk. The conclusion of your story isn't written yet. 
I mean, that's the other thing that we see in the Christmas account. Joseph has to make a decision. It will change the course of history. He doesn't see it. He has to risk first. But it tells us that faith matters, that your courage matters, that your perseverance in the face of difficulty matters, and God can use it, and God will honor it, and he did with Joseph, and he will with you take a risk. Here's the last thing. You commit yourself to Jesus. For some of you, maybe that means you recommit to Jesus. That's really what the messenger was asking of Joseph. When it says, you shall name him Jesus, that's a legal act. That's a legal commitment. Joseph is then and thereby binding himself to that little boy. And his future is now forever tied to the fate and future of that child. There's no going back. There's no receipts. I have a question for you. As much as it cost him, as much as there were consequences, as much as we see Joseph's story drift quietly into the background, do you think he ever regretted the decision that he made that day? You think he regretted seeing Jesus grow up, watching this boy grow strong and wise, increase, as the Bible said, in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and man? Do you think he ever regretted all the conversations, all the laughter, all the time together, the long walks, the days in the carpentry shop, all the conversations that we didn't hear, all the anticipation of who this boy would become? And do you think he ever regretted that moment when he saw and realized that this child, born in scandal, surrounded by rumor, was actually the savior of the world? I have a lingering suspicion that Joseph looked back at that moment and thought, you know, what if I hadn't done it? What if I'd given in to fear? What if I had refused to take the risk? What if I had refused to commit myself to this little boy who I didn't even understand at the time? And in that moment, he would have realized that all the challenges that he faced through all the years would pale in comparison to the glory that he saw in his son who became Savior. Whatever it is that you're walking through this season, it's possible that this struggle, this moment, will be the time that you discover God is more present with you and feel more capable than you have ever expected. This season, this struggle, even though it feels frightening or overwhelming, could be the moment that you find hope and peace and contentment like never before. And it's possible that God could use... Just one little act of faith, one step that you take this season to change the course, not just of your life, but of the history of your family, of your workplace, of your world. Certainly that was the thing for Joseph. Can it not be for you as well? Don't be afraid. There's a risk you need to take. Don't be afraid to take it. And remember that it only works 
if you tie yourself to the fate and future of this son, this little boy, who was born in the season that we call Christmas. Spend some time together in prayer. And I invite you as you as you close your eyes just to take a few moments to be honest about how you're feeling. Remember that when you're closest to disappointment, that God is closest to you. And for some of you right now, what's on your heart, it goes so deep that there just aren't even words to express it. That's okay. God still knows. The reason He came into the world, the reason He was born, surrounded in scandal and rumor, was to put His life at risk and was to take a risk on you, a decision that He never regretted, even when it cost Him His own life. I don't know what the risk will look like for you, but I know that you can trust Him with it. I don't know what you need to surrender right now, but I know that He's trustworthy and faithful and good. I know that Jesus came into the world for this moment for you. What would it look like right now for you to commit yourself to Him as Savior and Lord to tie your fate and your future to Him? Lord Jesus, we trust You. We come to You with all of who we are. We also want to be honest about all of who we're not. All that we fear. All that we hope. Help us to take a risk to trust You right now, just as we need to. Jesus, we're so grateful that You came into our world, into our messy Messy lives, lives filled with scandal and shame and rumor and disappointment. But you came as God with us, walking with us each step of the way. We're so grateful, Lord, for Christmas and for your life, for your love. We pray all of this together in your great name. In the name of Jesus, and together we say, Amen.